Welcome to Launchpad, a Tech Blast podcast which reveals what is needed to scale a successful technology startup. In each episode, industry players such as entrepreneurs and investors will discuss one aspect of growing a technology company and offer practical advice for scaling your business. In this episode, we are joined by Tom Dunlop, CEO of Surmise. Tom is a former corporate lawyer who founded Surmise in 2019 to improve legal contract management through technology. Its software integrates into other tech platforms to digitalize and automate a sector which remains bogged down in traditional manual processes. In 2023, the Manchester company reported triple-digit percentage growth for the third consecutive year and is scaling rapidly in the United States. Morning, Tom. How are you doing today? Morning. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to learning a bit more about Surmise, you know, how you're kind of helping with that sort of contract management in the legal sector, but actually more importantly how you decided to expand into the US and practical tips for that. So let's just start at the beginning. Um, you were a corporate lawyer, as we mentioned in the intro. You saw the problem that needed to be solved. What was that problem? So I think the initial problem and the, the very specific use case, I guess, that I was solving was um, being a corporate lawyer or in-house lawyer within a tech business, actually. And um, at the time we were being sold and it was actually going through that kind of due diligence process where uh, unfortunately, I had the, the the task of manually reviewing about 500 contracts, which was um, as painful as it sounds. And I think at the time, I was you know surrounded by very innovative people, departments, and I kind of went to a software engineer and basically said, "Who's my co-founder? You know, there's got to be a better way of, of of this problem." But I think stepping back in terms of you know how how that applies to pretty much every business, what what I found was that you know every business globally has these kind of signed contracts that have a load of things in there about obligations and things that people need to do, but no one really understands what's in them, if they can even find them a lot of the time. So certainly that post-signature problem was more from that sort of just general lack of understanding about, about what's in them. And then because I was a uh, you know in, in very sales-focused businesses as well, what I found was that kind of pre-signature process. So when you're just trying to even create a contract or review a contract, um, and that whole negotiation phase, there's just massive inefficiencies. Um, and being a lawyer that has spent years training, you're spending hours and hours doing, to be honest, pretty much like admin tasks um, and very manual tasks. So it was those kind of two dynamics, really. Lack of understanding of what you've actually signed and then just the huge inefficiencies around just the creation and negotiation of a contract before it goes to signature was the sort of problem that I uh, encountered. How did you go about solving that? Because I know you founded Surmise in 2019, but exactly how does that work? Yeah, so the initial use case or initial product, I guess, we brought to market and hence the name was how can we create a kind of easy to understand summary of a signed contract? And, and that isn't necessarily just about finding key terms or um, extracting key information. It was actually, can we turn that summary into very much natural language so anyone in the business can understand what it means? So that was definitely the the first, I guess, uh, solution to the problem um, was summarizing those uh, kind of signed contracts. But I think in terms of the pre-signature process, what we've really tried to do is um, apply a lot of automation. We've used AI in terms of the, the those kind of um, summaries that we do and review. But the big, big thing that we focused on, and this was the beauty of, I guess, developing the product throughout COVID, was we noticed that everyone had adopted these, I guess, everyday virtual office tools, Teams, Slack, Office 365, um, so the real solution that we went around is, can we do all of these efficiencies and can we apply our intelligence, but can we do it within the tools that people use every day? And that's been a massive selling point at USP that we've, I guess, maintained ever since really about that sort of integrated approach. And that means that 
you're not asking a company or, or a potential customer, if you like, to adopt a new system, move everything over, figure out how to connect them up, you know, which system you're working in today. It's just integrated, right? So I've seen Slack is one example. So just give me a flavor of how that might automate in someone's workflow. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I think that the context of this is that most B2B software vendors are, you know, they're, they're trying to make efficiencies within a business. You know, it's not, they sell to a particular team or a champion, for example, but ultimately it's a business tool. And that's what I realized, I guess, working out contracts aren't legal. They're actually a commercial document that reflects an understanding. So um, an example flow that we might do is let's say a, um, you know, commercial team, sales team use Salesforce um, within Salesforce, we can dynamically create a contract using information from, you know, whatever's contained in that opportunity. Um, so it will uh, use conditionality and then legal don't need to be involved in that process. So they can basically press a button and it will generate a bespoke contract essentially from within Salesforce. That might then come back into legal if it's getting negotiated. They love Microsoft Word, lawyers, in-house lawyers. So again, we plug into Microsoft Word, use our intelligence with AI summaries and, and an AI assistant. And then, for example, if it gets signed, um, we integrate with DocuSign. So we'll push it to DocuSign automatically. It will come back in, and then it will come back into Summize. We'll summarize it, and let's say push that information back into Salesforce again. So you can kind of see the holistic journey. We're, we're actually going from Salesforce to Microsoft Word to DocuSign back to Salesforce, but we're connecting all those dots and, I guess, providing our intelligence over the top of each of those tools. So you're kind of making that process much more fluid and more effective as well. Just give me a flavor of some of the, the clients that you work with, because you've got some some big name big name customers. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the beauty, I guess, of what we're trying to solve is one, every business has contracts or terms that they agree to. So I think we always knew that we could probably sell to every business globally, if I'm honest. But in terms of our sweet spot, we typically focus on between about 250 employee businesses to 5,000 employee businesses. Um, but we are very much kind of vertical or sector agnostic. So... To give an example, um, some of our clients like in, in the finance world from Rothschild Bank to Revolut. Um, in the tech sector, we have some very big players like Software AG or PTC, kind of multinational software companies. Um, to sports companies, Miami Heat, Everton, for example, and even some consumer brands um, to, such as Huel or Moonpig. So literally it's the, you know, from investment banks to birthday cards, it's quite simply like it's, it's pretty much every uh, every vertical that we could sell to. But the the one common denominator is, they'll probably have a legal team or at least one lawyer that is responsible for contracts. Obviously, we're an in-house lawyer, so you kind of understand that journey yourself, don't you? Yeah, I mean, which I think was, in some ways, and it still remains a bit a bit of a USP. So um, you, you do find that, you know, a lot of founders have felt, felt the pain because ultimately you probably need to have felt the pain because then you have that passion to really solve it. And I think that's what I found, you know, this the, the, actually developing a solution to a pain that I genuinely felt and hearing customers that were in the same position really resonate with that pain and really kind of almost like rejoice about the solution that we've created um, is really rewarding. But it's also, you know, I, I have that passion to essentially run through walls for the business because um, I, I know how much pain this causes the, uh, the legal team. So it definitely helps. So it's obviously been a difficult year or, or the last couple of years for, for tech, for business in general. Um, but consistently what we see every year is a story from Samai saying triple digit percentage growth, annual recurring revenue. And now you're in the US as well. So can you just give me an idea of, of what you think has been key to that growth? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's probably no one thing, but I think there's a few a few things that we've said that we, we've done based on 
um, I guess, the wider market. I think the first, and it comes back to that previous point, really, that we know we could go after every business pretty much globally, if I'm honest, but we've had a really, really focused, like, I guess, ICP or customer profile. So we've really segmented the market into very specific verticals and customer sizes. And we've made sure that every single person in our kind of go-to-market function is completely focused on those verticals. So, I mean, a good example how we shifted that in COVID, for example, which um, was a very different market, we knew that, you know, pharma, tech, those kind of industries were really booming. So we completely aligned our go-to-market engine to focus on those. Now, we've got the luxury that we can pretty much sell to any verticals. So that doesn't apply to everyone. Um, but that's that was definitely key for us. I think second was, you know, even though the market and even for tech companies was, was pretty um, dim out there, we noticed and everyone noticed these huge advancements, particularly in AI that came to market. So actually what we managed to do was made sure we were first the market in adopting this tech, incorporated into the product. And then if you stay ahead of the market and you're the innovator and you're known as being that kind of disruptor, um, it actually drives a lot of inbound interest um, to the products as well and really gets you the headlines, which, which can be the difference between winning and losing your deal. And I think the last point, um, which I think probably a segue into the into the US story, but we were very keen early on to make sure we diversified our markets because the UK market, you know, is susceptible to certain things, the US certain things, but the chances of both of those markets being in such a hole that, you know, you couldn't sell is pretty slim. So the fact that we were selling to both the US and UK, which we have done for well over um, 12 months now just decrease the risk that, you know, when the market wasn't great in the UK, that we could still turn to the US, in particular, let's say one vertical in the US, which might still be booming. So we we really tried to de-risk um, due to geographical markets as well. So you didn't hang around, you went to the US really quickly. And, you know, first of all, did you always plan to go to the US? And if you did, did you just think, let's just get there sooner rather than later so we don't lose that first, first mover advantage, as they say in the industry? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a general, I mean, well, I worked in a US company. So in many ways, I had that that luxury of knowing that the use case resonated. Whereas I think sometimes, I mean, particularly if you're a product business, there's a whole logistical challenge. There might be regulatory challenges. You know, for, for us, it was as simple as, you know, selling our product to a different a group of people, but use case and the ability to sell it was was pretty simple. Um, so it's always part of my plan in particular to to go there. And um, definitely the hesitancy to go there is, in my view, a very British mentality. I think I've, I've worked in U.S. companies that like you're almost, um, you know, you, the, the, there's, there's this feeling that if you're you've got a general impatience to get out there in the world and they have this thing that they should be the best products in the world. The British mentality has always been just take market share in the U.K. Do not get distracted. Focus on the U.K., 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 U.K. Um, but my view is the US is about three to five years ahead in terms of tech adoption. That That's a pretty general statement, but I think that we find that for our market, and I think it's true of a lot. So if you're there three to five years ahead, then it's completely counterintuitive to say, well, ignore that market for a few years. Let's focus on the UK. You're actually losing potentially six years um, of potential time of selling to the, the most innovative market probably in the world right now. So that was always our, our belief. I felt a massive... Um, I guess it's almost like FOMO. I know that people are buying products over there. I know that over there is where the competition are. And I also know that the buyers, a lot more buyers and active buyers over there. So every year that we spend just focusing on the UK, I mean, we're missing out on huge market share. So I'm not saying that we we wanted to go out there without testing it. And there's a few things that we made sure we did um, before we moved out to the, to the US. So for example, our go-to-market model 
you know, particularly on the outbound side where we're contacting and trying to get hold of customers. And we had to make sure it worked in the same way as the UK. And actually what we found was UK, we had to educate a lot more, probably longer sales cycles, but very different sales cycles, helping people build business cases. We had to, um, they never had budget before. So we had to help them get budget for our, for our tech. In the US, it was, it was a massively different switch where they just said, I've got budget, I know what it is, but why are you different? And so everything that we did in terms of our go-to-market had to change from the scripts for the, the SDRs we have who are making the phone calls, the demos, the marketing collateral, everything had to kind of change depending on US versus UK, but we solved that before we physically went. Some of the things like pricing, actually, which is great for us, the US pricing of actually... Um, was a lot more expensive than the UK because they'd got budget because it was known that they needed a solution. There was there was a lot more budget available to to access. So again, another reason well, why we're waiting when there's the budget actually circulated for our tech. Um, and we also also had a roadmap. It's probably about three to four months of of development that we had to do because we knew there were certain integrations, particularly with our story of the integrated CLM. So things like Salesforce, um, for example, we just had to have that in the products before we went to the US. Otherwise, we would never have been competitive. So all of that just was, I guess, some precursors from pricing products, I guess, that go-to-market engine, how does it convert through? We made sure we tested from the UK and we tried to make sure that we could validate that if we did invest over there, that it would flow through in sort of a similar fashion to the UK, or we could prove out those metrics. So we did do some pre-US work. It wasn't just, you know, let's go there on the whim, but we were impatient to get over there, definitely. Were you kind of surprised by the the level of inbound interest that you mentioned? I think in retrospect, yes, because I think I think it's just, again, I, I always go to this kind of British mentality, but I think you almost um, have this, uh, I guess, I don't know, assumption that, and you need to contact them and we have to sell the products. And it was, I think in the UK market, that's kind of what we were doing because of this education piece. So I think when we're getting stuff in organically, I was like, why, why, like almost like, why are they coming to us? It was a bit, was a bit kind of uh, taken by surprise. I think now in retrospect, obviously there is a, a much bigger market. So just the sheer, I guess, uh, law of averages, but they have a lot of active buyers. It felt like every US customer had an active project for our tech. So if you can imagine the sheer volume of companies that probably have one in-house lawyer and all of them are looking for this tech and they're searching around trying to find it. And we just invested a small amount of money in both paid and to get some SEO to make sure we actually appeared in some of the results. And we're just getting these kind of inbounds coming through. I think the real turning point for us as well was that convinced us to do a US event. So we actually funded an event, took a few people over there. Um, it happened to be in Vegas. That wasn't my decision. I just, you know, followed the event. Um, but we went there and hang on, hang on. What what what, <laughs> what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You're not allowed to say yeah. anything else. <laughs> well, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There was an event in Vegas, that's all. Um, no, but the uh the what we found on that when we actually got to speak to the I guess the the US in-house lawyers at the time, um just validated every assumption that we had. Um, and I think so we were getting inbound interest, we tested it from the UK, but being there in person. And um, was huge for us. And that massively fast tracks, I guess, the timing of, of why we went to the US when we did. So when you actually came to raise that funding to fund this expansion, you ultimately took it from UK investors. Did you look at the US investment market as well? Or? Yeah, we, we definitely did. I think because at the time, and this was kind of series A, we you know, the majority of our business was still from the UK and we were testing the US. What's interesting about the US, you've got, I mean, you've got very different mentalities. If you go really to the West Coast, 
and they quite literally will only invest in a company that they think can become worth you know 10 billion it is literally that or nothing and they 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 for us i'm not saying that um you know clm or legal markets can't be worth that they absolutely can but i think they're more into you know something that would apply to to, to every business full stop that like zoom or you know that we're on now and they're looking for those type of companies um, and I think that there was a slight mismatch when you're talking about a legal market with some in-house lawyers that they were naturally like, eh, a bit small. Um, <laughs> it's a multi-billion dollar market. Um, but then the East Coast was slightly different, but they they weren't they were looking for more 10x returns rather than just, you know, um deck accordance only. But they were really kind of honing in on, well, what proof points have you got in the US? And if you just say, Well, we've got, you know, two customers, the like they they couldn't. I guess they couldn't convince themselves because it's really important for US investors that you will be pretty much a US company ultimately. And what they probably couldn't see at that stage was, were we just testing, putting our foot in the water or we genuinely could scale this thing um, big in the US. And so I think when we started to have those conversations, I was quite quick to realize that we we probably didn't have the metrics or the volume in the US to just really focus on that being where we get the money from. So the, the, when then when I looked at how other UK businesses had done before, typically for that Series A or you know late seed or whatever um, stage funding, they'd gone to probably a, um, a UK investor, but one that had genuinely taken companies to the US and scaled them. So that became our criteria. And to be honest, the moment we had those conversations, it just felt more comfortable. It felt like they got us more as a business. There was a better fit, which was really important. There was better trust between us. Were probably more important to them because that's big for them that they have companies with those aspirations so it was a combination of all those things but we focused on on those uk investors with credentials going to the us so once you raise that money and you, you you launched in the us you like you say you did your your homework you know you did the event in vegas uh, that, that shall not be mentioned again um <laughs> what was your hiring strategy when you got there you know what, what's your presence look like now you know where, where are your offices yeah it's, it's a good question i think everyone always Kind of asked this about where would you set up and you know we we wanted for a few reasons to go to the east coast i think um time zone wise it, it was it was important to us we we didn't we, you know want to go straight to the west coast um so we looked across across the east coast and and then there's a few different factors for us really that we wanted to weigh up so one was well, where is the biggest i guess uh density of our perfect customer so again we've been trying to go to market we knew the type of customer that we could sell to and, and there's a real melting pot of all of our kind of customer profiles around the Boston, Massachusetts area. So if we're selling to law firms, which we weren't, then New York would have been a more obvious place. But Boston had this real um, melting pot. So um, so we looked at Boston. And then when we went there to, to, to have a look at Boston as well, I think the other big thing for me was it felt really similar to Manchester. So I was keen to make sure, you know, there's a certain... Um, I don't know, culture within Manchester anyway. And as a business, we adopt that, that kind of gritty, hardworking, it's like underdog mentality. Like there's a lot of things that we do that really harness that sort of Manchester mentality. And I think that I was keen to make sure that the US side of it reflected that. So it does feel like one culture and you're not getting, you know, a Silicon Valley culture mixed with a Manchester culture because they're two massively different mindsets, massively different people. The values are not shared. So it was for all those reasons, really, but we chose Boston. Um, and I think in terms of our plan for for Boston, we sent over our own. I think that's a really important thing that um, you know a lot of people get wrong. We didn't want to make a really expensive US hire that, that ended up being a, a bit of a flop. So we 
sent uh, three of our own guys over there who we trusted, been in the business a while, and had genuinely lived the values of, of the business as well. And then from there, we're building that out, um, and we're probably going to triple, maybe even quadruple the size of the office um, within 12 months of, of launching there. We've already upgraded the office um, to be more than double the size, and that's three, well, four months in, um, mm -hmm. or maybe just slightly more. So, um, and we plan on doing that again probably in the next six months. So it really is kind of compounding quite quite nicely now. How much time are you looking to spend there next year? I know, I know, this year you're slightly limited for personal reasons <laughs> yes which is because of a third child i might, I might say and uh some kind of weird personal reasons but i uh yes i was i was at home homebound to uh, make sure that having three children was uh was was not too overwhelming for certainly my wife so um, I, I have three children it is very overwhelming <laughs> yeah it is overwhelming yeah whatever and it will continue to be yeah <laughs> definitely um but we, I think for, from my point of view, it is it's really important that I get over there. I think particularly as we expand the office, we get more American employees as well as the British employees and we create this sort of melting pot. Um, I'll be going over there probably at least every other month, um, possibly more regularly, particularly because we're going to hold events and in person um, because it's quite important over there to, to, to do that. That'll be going over for them as well. So it'll it'll become a lot more regular um, as, we, as we scale the office. Something else you did is you actually launched the U.S. subsidiary, so Surmise Inc., I believe. What, what were your yes. reasons for doing that? Yeah, I think, I mean, you get a lot of advice about going to the U.S., and I think some of it's good, some of it's bad. Obviously, being a lawyer by background, I'd kind of been through this process to an extent before. And and I know that, you, you know, you don't have to necessarily launch uh, an Inc. straight away. I think a lot of people have before have done it basically out of their U.K. entity and basically operated out there with... Um, almost like a satellite staff just just being based over there. The one thing I learned from being a lawyer in this and actually exiting a couple of businesses before um, was there's always this tax liability question that comes up, which massively affects valuation. And what they basically say is, well, the moment you start selling to the US, you could be suggested that you should be liable in tax to the US um, uh, in revenue. So what, what we found was... Um, we actually fast-tracked the incorporation of, a, of an ink. We, we've set up the kind of uh, payroll and everything over there. And we've also, we're taking on the, and it is an administrative burden, the sales tax um, element over there and invoicing out the ink because basically you have to invoice different tax depending on which state the customer is based in. So it, you've got to be prepared for the, the more ad administrative stuff. I, again, advice differs. Some people say don't bother doing it. Um, what I would say on that is yes, okay. But if your ultimate plan is to exit, um, particularly to a US buyer at some point, um, this will probably come back and bite you in the in the backside if you don't do it earlier. Build every business or, or, or make decisions in your business every day like you're going to exit tomorrow. That, that's a piece of advice that was given to me once. So yeah, that, that sounds like Definitely. sound advice. If you, if, especially if you're just looking to really scale in the US and, and for that to be a, a significant proportion of your customer base, then you need to almost treat it like a US-based business, right? Yeah. Why people go to the US? I mean, we talked before about the, the size of the market, in particular for us, the ICP, whatever. But I mean, ultimately, if you're in a tech business, the, the chances are there'll be an exit plan at some point, particularly if you're taking on any kind of venture capital. And I think where is the most highest concentration of venture capital? I mean, it's in the US by significant difference. Um, so if you're going to look at the highest valuation and also the most competitive process, you almost have to be in the US um, if you're looking to do that. So I think if you say that as a as a kind of general rule, if you're looking to exit at some point, one, you have to be in the US and two, you have to 
act like a US company. You have to have everything in place that, that if you sell to a US company, they're not going to come and, um, I guess, discount it at the point of exit. This is the part of the pod where we asked you for your rocket fuel, as we've termed it, which is a few quick fire tips for people looking to launch and scale their business in the US. What can you tell them? Um, I think it's kind of uh, consulting what I've just said, really. I guess the three points. First is that I would always start with trusted UK people sending over there. Um, the horror stories I've heard um, all revolve around hiring expensive US heads and it doesn't work out. I'm not saying it is always going to work like that. But as a general rule, start with trusted UK people um, to set up the office and start small. The second is do treat it as a separate business. I've also seen a lot of other people almost assume that a lot of things will work the same way from uh, how you get leads in to how you do demos, the pricing, even things like the um, process, like the sales process, like there's a lot more competitive tension over there. So there's probably going to be more RFPs and, and procurement led processes. So really understand and treat it as if it's its own isolated startup and make sure everything is in place and you've tested it before you think about scaling it. And then the third is um, is something we just, just referenced there, actually location does matter if you're going to set up an office. I think I've heard so many stories where people have uh, drawn a line or put a pen on a map and they've just thought, ah, well, it's US, it's massive, we'll, just, we'll set up there. Um, for us particularly if you're, you're using that first point of, start, of setting up with US, UK people, the culture is massive. And for those that have been to the US, know that every state is essentially like a separate country in terms of like, it's almost like mainland Europe. So different culturally. So if you're sending the UK people there to establish your brand, your culture, and you go to the wrong state, you're, it's a recipe for failure. And, it, and they'll end up coming back and it won't work. So location really matters in terms of where your customers are, Obviously, time zone, um, but also in terms of culture. Because for us, we started East Coast. I've been at a business before where they were in Denver. So if you go into more West Coast, that felt like Manchester, culturally very similar, but further over in terms of time zone. So it's just really been alive to, to, to where the location is. Yeah, I've seen South Park. I know all about Denver. Yes. Um, what, what, does Massachusetts have an animal like you know the California bear and, and the Manchester worker bee? Does it have like a? <laughs> Do you know what? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I've not really looked at it. Uh, put me on the spot with that one. <laughs> you did put me on the spot. The only thing I'd say is that we got an office out there, um, and we were massively um, swayed by the fact that their logo is a bee. Um, I, was, I was like, it's fate. When we went to the office, I was kind of there's a bee on the wall. I couldn't get more Manchester. So it. There you go. It, I don't know, but. The B is prevalent in the office. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, we always finish off our podcast and, and webinars by asking you for uh, a little bit of inside information on you know, something that might surprise us about you from your personal life or not. Things that people maybe don't know. What can you What can you tell them? I guess I could say this is a surprise. It's not really a surprise. I feel like I um, I've been clinging onto this for years, so it's is hardly a. Uh, a secret as such um but it's always i still think it's quite impressive even though it was years ago but i used to play badminton for great britain for a number of years um and also probably more interestingly that actually when i left great britain um i actually represented geneva and went to the swiss played in the swiss professional league for a number of years um almost like i mean it's not quite as glamorous as football um but that was something which was uh basically my life for for uh for, for a number of years wow and and how did you do in the um in the what was it you said the you represented Swiss Britain professional in, league. no i mean when you represented britain what was it the, oh it was in britain yeah i mean it, it was i mean throughout all of the certainly the junior years and then going into kind of um the the seniors in the first couple of years um i was 
I, I, I was a kind of British European champion for a number of years. So it was, um, yeah, it was a big, I mean, uh, back then as well, you, you're not necessarily thinking about money as well. So it was all about winning and that was it. And that's all about Olympic, Olympic sports generally. But um, for me, it was a great experience until it became, oh, is this my job? How do I get paid? What's my life going to be like? And then at that point, it was kind of like, hmm, uh, I might need to think about uh, whether this is this is kind of for me. Yeah, I guess that was before before more funding came into sport ahead of London 2012, that kind of stuff, right? To be honest, back then, there was probably more funding than there is now um because of 2012 so it was leading up to 2012 i think it's just still i mean it's it's massively uneven in terms of how it's how it's spread and pretty much no athlete can live off the funding amount it's just you get a lot of free access to training services and things like that um and then the commercial side of it obviously just not quite there in a lot of sports badminton being one of them very dangerous way to end the podcast seeing as I'm a former sports journalist. So what I'll do is I'll try and bring it back onto business by saying, <laughs> are there any any kind of learnings from that experience as a high-level badminton player that you you brought into your business career? Nice, nice link. Nice link back as well. You saved it. Thanks, man. Um, yeah. <laughs> the uh there's there's definitely a lot of the kind of learnings and and just I mean, to be honest with you, when, probably when I was an athlete, I didn't pay enough attention to some of these traits or things that I was probably just naturally doing. So I th- I'd say that when I got into the business world, I probably questioned, if I'm honest, I was kind of like, why is no one else like me? What, what's what's going on? So I tried to distill what the the sort of main traits were that I felt were important to succeed in sport. And really what it came down to was a huge emphasis on this continuous improvement. I mean, it's, it's well documented, the whole marginal gains, 1%. Um, but, it's, but it is just that general feeling, which businesses don't have a lot of time, of just constantly moving forward and finding ways to get ahead. And I think that athletes are obsessed with that because um, they have to get one up on their opponent all the time. And I think as a business, you can get so caught up in the day-to-day that you're not really, it becomes a bit of a, a moaning culture, a bit of a, oh, you know, like I, I don't really like work and this is a problem, that's a problem. So definitely the biggest one was this, you know, continuous improvement forward motion. I think we do have a a bit of, a, well, I'd say it's healthy obsession with just winning and will to win is one of our values, which, you know, we do celebrate ultimately we're a competitive environment. And I, I think this is more like a sports team than a family as such in terms of a, the business. Um, and then we, and this is probably Manchester combined with sports, but I think we have this sort of gritty underdog, like we've got to work harder than everyone else to win. Um, you know, whatever they're doing, we do it more. And I think there's just those three things in particular have really become a bit of a cornerstone in our, in our kind of values and, and and culture. Amazing. Thanks ever so much for that. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I think it's been really useful for the for the listeners to learn a bit about how they need to prepare for going to the US. You know, maybe they need to set up a US subsidiary, especially if they're looking to exit in the future. Um, you know, the importance of putting on events when you get there. And and obviously the difference between different states almost being like different countries. So yeah, that's amazing. Perfect. Thank you for having me. If you have any feedback on today's episode, scribble it down on LinkedIn, X or YouTube, or drop us an email at podcasts at businesscloud.co.uk. If you enjoyed the episode and found it useful, please like and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform to be among the first to hear insights from renowned entrepreneurs and investors. Thanks for listening and see you soon. Launchpad is a Tech Blast podcast produced in partnership with pan-European B2B tech PR and communications agency Titan. New episodes are streamed on Tech Blast's YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages from 12 p.m. on the final Friday of every month. Or you can find all episodes on YouTube and all major audio podcast platforms. Subscribe now so you never miss an episode.